0: Yesterday's Concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Media Network. I mean, the the
1: great jazz albums, I guess, work at whatever distance listening you want to contribute. But there are some great jazz albums that really demand that you pay attention to them if you're going to get anything really out of them. There's some music that is just too complicated and too rich to let you put it in the background. It'll grab you by the throat. Like when I say John Coltrane, there's John Coltrane music that you cannot listen to without it grabbing you. It's just, it it will take you. There's some that's not like that, but there's a lot. And there's some that'll leave you far behind. You won't know where he's going or why he's going there.
0: Welcome concert goers, music fanatics, and jazz heads. My name is Lance Ingram and in this encore episode of yesterday's concert, Howard Mandel teaches us to have better ears for jazz comprehension. Grab your earplugs to avoid being kinda blue as we take giant steps to explore some brilliant corners of music. Today we're talking to Howard Mandel, president of the Jazz Journalists Association. He's an author, former NYU professor, and NPR reporter. Even as a fan of improvisational music, sometimes I struggle to properly digest jazz. So I'm excited to hear Howard's expertise in having better ears for jazz comprehension. So that said, Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So we're going to start with just our quick round of Q and A. It's a rapid fire, uh, just to help establish some credibility, get to know you better. Uh, So the first question. Is what's your favorite non-jazz album?
1: Um hmm. Man Blues by Junior Wells and Buddy Guy Quartet record.
0: That's a great oh great choice, Howard. So what's your favorite jazz album?
1: Oh gosh. Let me say science fiction by Ornette Coleman.
0: Okay, there we go. I like you didn't even have to think about it. You you really had that one ready. So there you go. Okay, so do you remember the first jazz album you ever heard?
1: I do. It was called uh, Remember How Great, record from Lucky Strike Cigarettes. And it was a number of 78s that, you know, they turned into an LP as a uh, bonus for something. Uh, my parents were not smokers, but for some reason they got a hold of this album. And it had several very good... Jazz cuts on it like Count Basie's One O'Clock Jump. And I remember uh, Doris Day singing Sentimental Journey with the West Brown Orchestra. And um, I must have been maybe eight or nine.
0: That's great. So what's one jazz artist that every music fan should...
1: Oh, John Coltrane, I would say. For the depth of his sound for the uh, development of his art, and for
0: the breadth of his vista. So yes or no only to this next question, and then we'll expand on it in our our next part. Do you think jazz is for everyone? Yes. There we go. I figured so. I would hope so, at least. Okay, so to kind of get started, I feel like we kind of need to establish a little bit first. There's a lot of different subgenres to jazz. Uh, you know, you got Cool Jazz, Swing, Bebop, Fusion, Free Jazz. Can you talk through some of the bigger ones and kind of give me an idea of what they are?
1: Well, genre is a difficult issue because, you know, it's really sort of commercial. Like you go into the record store, and you say, well, I want to hear uh, this genre. So you go to that genre's uh, card. That's what we used to do. Or even if you go to Spotify and say, well, I want to hear something in jazz. And you click on that. And then I guess you'd be, presented with that, that menu of subgenres, But But personally, I find it's more useful to look at it chronologically, maybe by historical eras, because there's a very different sound from the 1920s to the 1970s to today. And that gives you a little bit more sense of where you want to start, you know? We could talk about genre things. I mean, electric jazz does it have electric instruments in it? Um, Was it fusion, where it's uh, grabbing onto some music elements and trying to graft some jazz elements, like maybe improvisation, into a uh, pop song? Or are we talking about trad jazz, which would be something from New Orleans? originally in the 1920s, although there's still people playing in that format today. So I, I'm always a little leery. I, you know, it's kind of a, a a badge or a button to say, well, this is it's subgenre, this is that subgenre. It doesn't tell you about quality. It doesn't really tell you about a lot of the values that you can find in that music.
0: So one thing when I think about people connecting to new music is introducing them to something similar. Like, for instance, I'm a big fan of jam bands. So one of the things that I connected to first was Herbie Hancock, Fusion, that kind of thing. Do you think that's applicable for jazz? Do you think that's a good way for people to get introduced?
1: Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you, you're you listening and you're not thinking about what am I going to turn to next? But you hear something... And you go, whoa, that's sort of interesting. I wonder if I can hear some more of that. And then where do you look for it? So if you got into Herbie Hancock fusion and uh, you thought, wow, he's playing. What a what a beautiful melody that that guy just played in his right hand, I guess. I wonder I wonder if he does that on a piano as opposed to on a synthesizer. Or maybe you say, wow, I've never heard synthesizers and multi-keyboard sound like that. And, you know, you keep digging into it. And then you work your way forward, like to Future Shock from uh, Chameleon, or you work your way back to uh, Speak Like a Child or uh, Maiden Voyage, one of my favorite Herbie Herbie Rabcock records. Yeah. um, You know, so I mean, I think that's very natural. One of the earliest jazz experiences I had was hearing um, Henry Mancini's theme for Peter Gunn. And this is a big, brassy, it was a TV show theme in the 50s, and it's, boy, it was an exciting, I mean, I can't, again, I was prepubescent at the time, and it was just like a really macho, big, blaring sound. I thought it was thrilling. Now, today, you know, if somebody says, well, I'm going to go listen to some some jazz, I think I'll start with her, Henry Mancini. I go, well, okay, you know, that's where you're starting, <laughs> You know, but that may not be like for my sophisticated and snobby attitudes, of jazz, but you know it starts. And I think jazz is feeding, nourishing almost all forms of American music um in the present day. and most most forms of music worldwide, there are certain things that jazz has uh, emphasized and enabled other musicians to do. Improvisation, rhythmic play, uh, encouraging experimentation or ex- exploration. And I think that feeds lots of kinds of music.
0: Hmm. So, I mean, you saying that, what do you think, what would be your go-to album to introduce people if they're wanting to get into jazz then?
1: Well, you know, I think the classic uh, go-to is Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. That's what I thought you'd say. I mean, it's... When I sold records, uh, at the jazz record mart in Chicago when I was 17, 18 years old, we would always have a stack of kind of blue by the door. Because if somebody mm-hmm. came in and said, well, what's jazz? It's, Listen to this. I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, six or seven really distinctive musicians' voices, but you don't have to think that and think, oh, how Cannonball Ehrley listens plays differently than John Coltrane. You just hear the whole thing come together. But what's good about it is a bass line that announces itself immediately, an attractive rhythm that you can really follow. It's not very complicated. It's very steady, and it's very seductive. Miles' personal sound, which is quite intimate. You don't feel like you're getting brass played in your face and you have to step back. Rather, somebody's putting out a sound you want to step closer to. And then basic melodies that are... Immediately graspable, and that then you could hear the musicians take into places that you would not have imagined. And they play so sympathetically together, it just gives you the mood, it gives you the feeling. And I think if you're going to introduce somebody to jazz, that's really the key. You've got to find something that is going to strike their mood pretty immediately. And if you've got that, then they can get their curiosity working up and they begin to look into what is creating that feeling in them. What, what gives them that mood? So I, Miles is one of my, one yes, that would be my go-to.
0: As, as a self-professed jazz snob, how do you view that album now? Do you view it kind of condescendingly? Because Not at all. So many people are, no, really. Okay. That is a total how do classic you do it now? album.
1: It's a total classic album. I mean, everybody's playing at a brilliant level. The sensitivity they have to each other is really remarkable. The uh, improvisations are, I'm not tired of them, and I've been listening to them uh, for um, 50 years, more than 50 years. Uh, It's beautiful. It's it's an enduring work of art, of musical art. Mm -hmm. It's funny, one of the albums that I used to, I got into jazz listening to, was Herbie Mann's Live at the Village Gate. And it's a trio. Mann is playing flute, and there's a bassist, and there's a percussionist, a conga player. And they play a blues, Coming Home Baby. And when I was a teenager, I was playing flute a little bit, and I listened to that, and I, it was very easy to pick up. And uh, the sound, I listened to it recently, and I thought, you know, he's not really playing flute very well. I mean, I, that was got to my snobbishness, you know. <laughs> but um, I enjoyed it at the time, and I enjoy it now for what it is. I listen and I say, "I would like to play in a situation like that. I'd love to play with a bass player who's going thump 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 thump, and I could noodle on flute over that. Work with a percussion player. That would be fun." Now, as a snob. <laughs> I don't know if I want to spend my time listening to it. I've already gotten everything I can out of listening to it. It feels like mm. that is not the case of Miles Davis is kind of blue. I don't think I will ever get um, everything out of it. And I think that that particular piece of music changes as I've changed. You know, that's one of the things about jazz and any art form that's really has value. You keep reassessing it and reassessing it in relationship to your own development. Well, we're, talk- well, we're talking about starting out. You know, and you can't do that when you're starting out. When you're starting out, you let the music hit you. You try to feel whether you like it or not. If you don't like it, I advise you to try to figure out why.
0: One of the things I think about, uh, you know, how people connect to music, popular music and specifically is the they connect to the words or they connect to the, you know, the guitar riff or whatever it may be. And with jazz, it's a little different because it's it's just it's not the same. And so how would, how would you describe a good jazz album versus a bad jazz album, whereas you were just talking about as you grew older, you started to recognize that other album wasn't as great. So how would you describe the difference in them?
1: Well, I got to realize what can be done on the instrument. And I realized that he was, that the flutist didn't have as good a sound as I would have hoped. I mean, just his blowing sound, his timbre. Hmm. Um I didn't think his ideas were as exciting. I mean, I think probably when I first heard them, I've never heard anybody play anything like that on flute. But like I've listened to flute again for 60 years and <laughs> I've heard people do a lot of incredible things now. So, you know, if you're doing the basics, it's it's nice. It could be good and it can have feeling and that can make it profound. But also, you know, I've got, Uh, desires for something a little bit more intricate or sophisticated in some way, but bad jazz albums, people playing out of tune, people not really listening to each other. That's the, (laughs) when it's not happening it's that they're not listening to each other or don't know how to respond with their instruments to what the other person is doing with their instruments.
0: As a listener, how do you make that distinction? How can you tell when they're not listening to each other? It sounds clunky, hmm. you know. It just doesn't flow.
1: Yeah, the flow isn't there. Or it's interrupted, or in, uh, you get. When I was teaching at NYU, I would try to get my students to just feel the rhythm in their bodies and just see if they could figure out when to snap their fingers for their, you know, and if you're feeling like a oh. Bump, bump. I mean, that's not the kind of rhythm that I want to sit with. I want to hear something that's uh, bump, 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 bump. It's got more lift to it. It's got more forward momentum, maybe more complexity, maybe multiple rhythms going on. I mean, again, that's for a uh, sophisticated listening situation where you understand what the rhythms are already. Um, It's subjective. Uh, listening is a subjective experience and i don't uh, think that that should be downplayed you know that's part of it but you asked about language words or a guitar riff i mean a lot of instrumental music instrumental jazz does have a, a introductory riff that you can really grab a hold of yeah and then there's a large body of vocal jazz of course so we can hear the the words and then hear the musicians working around the words, or working after the words, giving a little different definition or meaning to them. I mean, the classic example of that has to be Lester Young with uh, Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday will sing beautiful, strong song, straightforward diction. I mean, she has her, her signature elements that are unusual, unique. But then Lester Young is playing his tenor saxophone around her vocal phrases and really adding another element and and at least the way I hear it and it would be similar to how I would listen to pop music also is that that instrumental element really embraces her voice or her voice is embedded in it in a way so that they're not separable and I think that that's a wonderful step towards listening to instrumental music itself without the vocal the other element is that there's a lot of jazz that is uh based on popular songs so people know the words and they can hear the instrumentalists play the melody and kind of uh, substitute the words for themselves
0: you know yeah so that works too when i was in college uh Jeff Coffin and future man were passing through town and they did, they just stopped at our university and did a workshop in the middle of the day. So I can't, I skipped all my classes and went to see them do this workshop. Um, and mind you, I'm not a musician. So I was just there in awe of, you know, these great talented artists. Uh, but one of the things that I took with me was Jeff Coffin was talking about singing the lyrics through the instrument. And I think he played like, you know, this land is your land or the star spangled banner or something. And he said like, if you didn't know the words, if you didn't know this was a song, you would just be hearing the notes, but you could tell that I'm singing something through the notes. And that's since then, I've tried to take it as, you know, what are they singing? Like, what What are the words that they're trying to put to the notes that they're playing? And so I think that lyrical distinction that you were talking about is really applicable, especially in Jeff Kaufman, what he was saying.
1: Well, yes. And. I mean, that's something that Lester Young, who I just mentioned in, in association with Billy Holiday, he said, you have to know the words to the songs. He had to know them to play them, you know. Now, it, what I used to tell my students at NYU, though, is, okay, here's some music. We're going to listen to it three or four times. Begin to think of what words you would put to it. What, you know, it, they don't have to rhyme. Uh, you don't have to write a poem here or a lyric, but just what words to those sounds the way they are sequenced, what do they mean to you? What, what would what would you think that somebody is saying, or what would you say if you were making those sounds? So I think it's all about trying to um, to get close to the music. You have to somehow find your relationship to it, relate to it, respond to it, imagine yourself as part of it. You know, that's something that jazz allows. That a lot of music, which uh, has a more spectacular superficial level does not let you into, you know?
0: And that's one of the things when I think about jazz, especially is it requires so much active listening and I'm going to contradict myself later because it is often used as backdrop music, but I mean, to listen to, you know, some of these albums, it really requires you to be engaged in the, the words or else you're missing so much of it. And it is just noise. It is just background, whatever. Uh, you know, that's I think about when I was in college. There was um, my my favorite jazz album is Freddie Hubbard's "Keep Your Soul Together." I would listen to that just re- on repeat while I was studying because it is great background music. But the active listening forced me to become more engaged with not only the music but with what I was studying, and that's what I really it connected me deeper to what I was reading or reviewing or whatever it may be. And so that's I think. Can you talk a little bit about that active listening? And how that's that's really so important?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: do you disagree?
1: No, I don't disagree. I think that that's an activity in in appreciating. I mean, I think people come to jazz because they want to listen. You know, people mm-hmm. who are real jazz fans they are they are there to listen. They are, they're there to socialize also often or making a scene. You know, but people are drawn to jazz because they want to. He- I mean it's like people who go to an art gallery are going because they want to look Mm. or uh, you want to engage with this music. The people who get really into it, who are know every instrumentalist and can tell who they are by a first couple notes and everything like that. That's because they enjoy listening and decoding the world by listening. I mean, to me, one of the things that I thought I could do as a, as a writer, um, early on, that I didn't see people doing often, other writers, I could pay attention to sound. So, are we have very visual society in America? We don't have such a analytical audio society, although that we're bombarded with audio. So I thought, like, let me learn how to read some of these signs that are made by musicians or by People who are designing sound. What, what are these signs? What are those structures? And to dig in a little further, now that's active listening. I've got to say, um, you can put on kind of blue, for instance, and have it in the background. And I think a lot of people do. You know, it's not disruptive of, of having dinner or making love or anything like that. But, and, and it could facilitate it. I mean, I've put on, you know, music uh, when I've been on dates or, or, you know, to try to create a particular mood or to enhance an experience. That's all fine. I'm not sitting there thinking, wow, Coltrane is playing uh, diminished sevenths and 60, uh, blah, 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 while I'm yeah. eating dinner, you know, or, but um, uh, the effect of what he's playing is what I'm getting. And, it, and it's enjoyable. Uh, And I I will also say this, today, I can't really split my attentions. Like, I always used to be able to read and listen to music at the same time. Today, if I'm reading, I'm really not listening to that music. I'm not hearing it. I mean, not even on the basis of I might hear it like if I was eating as background. I mean, the, the great jazz albums, I guess, work at whatever distance listening you want to contribute but there are some great jazz albums that really demand that you pay attention to them if you're going to get anything really out of them i mean there's some music that is just too complicated and too rich to let you put it in the background it'll grab you by the throat like when i say john coltrane there's john coltrane music that you cannot listen to Without it grabbing you, it just it it will take you. There's some that's not like that, but there's a lot, and there there's some that'll leave you far behind. You won't know where he's going or why he's going there.
0: Since you brought up John Coltrane, that was the inspiration behind me wanting to have this conversation. Um, You know, I am a very introductory jazz fan in many ways, Um, and so I'm not very versed in the depths of his discography like I should be. Um, I know the hits, I know the bigger albums, Um, and I was online and somebody recommended that I try his album Ascension. And I had, you know, my preconceived notions of Coltrane are a lot smoother. I was working on assembling some furniture, and I put on Ascension, and my world was rocked. Uh, It is free jazz, I didn't understand it, and it quite frankly frustrated me. And that's, to be honest, I have not finished listening to that album, because it's so intense. And that's, you know, what should I be listening for to better understand that? Or I think let's back up. How do help me understand free, help me understand free jazz. That may be the the initial step in that.
1: Well, okay. Free jazz, like any subgenre term is, uh, um, as I was saying before, kind of a a label. And it doesn't really necessarily uh, enlighten you as to what is, in the barrel that label is on, but but let's start from the beginning with it. So, when Ornette Coleman started talking about free jazz, he was trying to say, freed from limitations, freed from some conventions, conventions that had become stultifying. He wanted, and he, he heard something that was beyond those conventions and he wanted to express it and thought there was no reason not to play with the elements that he heard. So what am I talking about? Let's say song form. You know, every pop song is basically, not every song, but many songs are ABBA format. So they they say the melody, they say it again, they say the bridge, then they say the melody. Well, Ornette didn't necessarily want to stick to that. And also most pop songs Are in four four time one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. Well, Ornette didn't think that it was necessary to go two, two, three, four. When you're walking down the street whistling, you don't whistle in four four time, you don't whistle in bars that end at 16 measures and then you start whistling again. You're just kind of expressing sounds that you hear within yourself. Okay, if you have, let's say, two musicians really know their way around their instruments and they like to play and playing has uh, that connotation of having fun to it and being free in your flow. So that's what they're doing with free jazz. They're saying, we're not going to start with a song form that we have to fit ourselves into. Let's start playing and see where it goes. It doesn't have to be completely without structure or completely without predetermined elements, but it can be released of some of the uh, barriers or obstacles or just format. I mean, not to put a negative term on these things, this is the way songs are, okay. But not every song has to be like that. And that can go for melody, it can go for harmony, it can go for rhythm, it can go for structure. You can throw out any number of elements you can include any number of other elements jazz doesn't always have to have the blues in it, you know, so uh, is it free jazz to take uh, the music of Bach and extrapolate it on improvisational way? I mean uh, that's something that like the modern jazz quartet did um, uh, taking classical music and. Uh, rearranging it for uh, vibes and jazz piano and bass and drums that wasn't free jazz they were viewing to a format but they were taking freedoms with it so okay let's got to coltrane then and coltrane was somebody who was also very responsive to society societal change and to his circle his musical circle and what was going on with specifically black men um, in the late fifties and early sixties. He he had a devotional element to himself. He was on a pro- fairly profound spiritual search, I think, trying to establish his own identity, trying to understand his place in the universe. You know all the big philosophical questions, and the guy was just a saxophone player, but that doesn't mean that he can't go after profundity and he can't think about you know things on a cosmic scale let him do that he had come from a traditional back a traditional jazz background he knew bebop he knew swing music he played with miles davis who was at the top of the game commercially and also creatively uh he knew sonny rollins was his chief uh friend rival another saxophone player who could do anything with the horn Coltrane wants to distinguish himself. He's looking into Indian music, African music. He's very aware of the civil rights struggles of the time, as were his peer group, other Black musicians, especially Black musicians, but not only, who were dealing with civil rights issues on a very day-to-day basis. And these were people who were assertive, smart artists, and they were at the forefront of trying to restate their value in society. They weren't just jazz musicians to be dismissed because they're playing that horn. They were serious people who were trying to make something that was expressive and engaging audiences, even in very profound ideas. Or, and, and so Coltrane, I think, keeps trying to express that. And sometimes he begins to play things that other people would not play. Growls. Uh, He's finding new things to do on the horn, new ways of playing it, because he keeps studying it and studying it obsessively. And he's interested in other people who are doing something similar, who have unique sounds. He collects them around him. He encourages them. In some cases, he basically produced their albums. And then, you know, he's, he's trying to enlarge his artistic footprint all the time he tries this with ascension which is a very difficult record to listen to um it's very dense as you say there's a lot of people doing making a lot of noise all at the same time how do you parse that out well for a beginning listener i mean if that rocked your um boat when you were constructing materials that's pretty cool. You you were on the right level then, like physically. I bet energetically you were working on something that required you to be active and energetic. And here's this music that is also active and energetic. I mean, I suppose that's how people listen to heavy metal also. you know, They're just amped up like that. So they, they can identify with that level of energy. But to me, when I'm listening to Ascension, which I do not do often, I won't lie about that, <laughs> But um, I've listened to it, and it—you know, it, it, it's a powerful piece. If you could sit with it, it's, it really takes you from sitting in a chair with your feet on the floor. If you are listening to that, you're going to be bouncing your head against the ceiling. There's just so much sound. To be able to take it all in, you yourself have to expand. And then I'm listening to Freddie Hubbard in it. I can follow Freddie's line because I know what he sounds like. Marion Brown, mm-hmm. Archie Shepp, all these different horn players. Now, many listeners, when they start listening to jazz, can't tell the difference between a saxophone and a trumpet. Mm-hmm. So, if you have three trumpets and four saxophones, and they're all playing whatever they think they should be playing, not something that's arranged, that that's quite a chore. And the and the and the rhythm section is complicated, also. I mean, really, the only way to take in the I think is uh make yourself comfortable and devote yourself to you know, 40 minute concentration one of the stories that i tell in my book um Miles also cecil jazz jazz is when i first started listening to cecil taylor and and maybe this is instructive along the same lines or a way to get into it so i would buy records that were cutouts or uh Promo copies that were cheap because I was a teenager with no money. And I was buying things on the Blue Note record label because I had listened to Maiden um, Voyage and some other Herbie Hancock, and some other records on that label. And I recognized names and I was beginning to trust whatever they put out. So here was this record called Unit Structures by Cecil Taylor. I didn't know Cecil Taylor. I didn't know uh, anybody um, listed on the credits. But I bought it, it was probably 98. And I took it home and I put it on and it seemed like completely incomprehensible to me. And um, I figured, well, you know, this will bug my mother. So that's a good thing. I put it on sometimes to bother my mom or just to keep her in the other room while I was doing homework or something like that. And one day I was doing that and all of a sudden the, the music, which I had listened to probably by that time, a couple dozen times at least, but it all clicked for me. And I wasn't doing anything active for that to happen. But subconsciously or inactively, I had taken in enough of the sounds for somehow the pattern to suddenly emerge. That pattern was there. I had just not been able to recognize it before. And then I went, oh my gosh. And I took the needle back and I put it back a few you know, millimeters. And sure enough, the thing that I thought I had, heard, I heard again. And I realized that was that was in there. I mean, that was not an accident. These people had worked to get to that. And I thought that was like really uh, astounding. It I really opened up to me what music can be and maybe how musicians think of it to some extent. So it was an inactive listening, but repeated listening that familiarized me enough with some of the unfamiliar elements that then it could reveal itself.
0: No, that makes complete sense. And when you were telling that story, I was thinking about when I got into the band fish, it was very much in that same vein because it was, you know, i had always heard about like, either you get it with a big emphasis on it or you don't. And that was, I remember listening and I was like, I don't dislike this, but I don't necessarily like it. And then there was just one magical day. It was the song divided sky and it was during this long instrumental part of the song and it clicked and i said oh my gosh i finally understand all and then their music took on a whole new world after that and you know i think that's one thing especially with jazz that you're going to see is that you have to get it but it's going to take some work to get there i think that's an overwhelming thing but i want to go back to what you were saying earlier too about heavy metal that really resonated with me you know when i exercise or do anything like that i i do prefer Hard rock, heavy metal, something more intense. And I, I specifically remember that first time I listened to Ascension or tried to listen to it, I felt nauseous. I, I felt physically ill from just the chaos and the, the the music surrounding it. And I mean, one of the things you've touched on throughout this conversation is just that feeling. You know, and I, I don't think that feeling is wrong in my working towards getting to it. I think that's part of the voyage for me in understanding that album. Would you agree? I
1: do agree, and I think actually, um, that feeling of a churning, a, st- a churning in the stomach, a nausea. I, I mean, I, I identify that with with Ascension specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is really a disturbing album, at and it hits you in the gut. You know. These are some people who are saying some things that are reaching for something in the moment and, and don't think that they have an understanding of what's going on either. And they don't necessarily like hearing somebody else playing in their ear while they're trying to
0: play something. That's, you
1: know, it, it, it's a chaotic album. And, and it's hard to take in. It's, I mean, it's probably one of the biggest challenges. And it's debatable whether there's a payoff. I mean, not everybody believes that Ascension is a masterpiece. I think we all believe that it was a really earth-shaking effort, mm-hmm. but it's a powerful document and statement, and it, it has a view to it, but it, it's gut-wrenching. I mean, it, it has a churning element to it. It's way down low in the chakras, is what they say, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's a gutsy element. It's a, it's a macho album in a lot of ways. They are trying to blow their heads off. Interesting conjecture about this. The uh, Coltrane biographer Lewis Porter has documented that Coltrane took acid at various times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had that experience. I wonder what it sounds like that way. And I wonder if they were if any of those musicians were on acid when they were playing. It's very conjectural, and I'm not about to drop acid to try it.
0: No, no, no. That's it's interesting you say that I wasn't going to bring it up, but in all the recommend, I, I saw it online, people were recommending this album and it, the original poster was asking, like, how do I understand this? And everyone was essentially, everyone was responding, drop acid and listen to it. That was the common response to it. And so, I mean, a part of me was wondering, like, did I just take in this album wrong? Was, uh, was I supposed to drop some L and then take it in?
1: I'm not anti-drug, but I wouldn't uh, I don't like to think that you have to. Take anything extraneous in order to appreciate any particular work
0: of art no i completely agree i want to be very clear i completely agree i have seen fish 17 times dead sober every single time the music did not change because of my sobriety in that like you said it, it could open your mind but i do think going back to what i was saying I, I do think there's a way even in sober to have a greater appreciation and understanding of yeah. the
1: music as well so then how do we Let's say we're sober and we want we to learn how to listen to Ascension, which is so difficult. I mean, I would start, if somebody said that's the, the issue, how do I achieve it? I would try starting them on earlier culturing, maybe culturing with um, Eric Dolphy, so that there are two saxophones on the record Impressions, which is one of my favorites. And it was a live date from the village uh, Card, one of several that they put out. I think you cannot listen to without. They're really blowing. This is fun. Okay, so you go from there and you hear the two saxophones and realize that they're both distinct from each other doing something, but also they merge, so they're doing something. And you also get a feeling perhaps for the rhythm section, which isn't just keeping time, simply bum, 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 but the the, ba- the the drummer, Alvin Jones, is playing all these different rhythms like kind of simultaneously. So, get used to that. Then you maybe move on to another culture and record, Meditations, where there's another saxophonist, this Pharaoh Sanders. Now, he plays a lot more extreme sounds than Eric Lolfi did. And culture, the music is much more dense, even than impressions. And it's more open harmonically, I guess I would say. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the pianist, especially adds another element that, another force field. Okay, so you're, you're learning how to listen to more and more stuff happening simultaneously. And that it's going outside the, the lines in terms of melody or the sounds that are considered conventional on saxophone. And then you get to ascension. We should only do this work if it's fun for
0: that, and that's what I was thinking while you were saying that is, you know, it, it sounds like Ascension is the, the top boss on hard kind of level of engaging in jazz music. Whereas, I mean, most of what I've listened to is is very accessible. I mean, you know, I feel like Ascension is maybe the hardest of the hard, whereas.
1: I had an experience again when I was a kid. My parents gave me the record um, Solo Monk. Mm -hmm. and it's a cool-looking record. Monk's uh, looks like a fighter pilot, like the Red Baron, you know, from Mm -hmm. World War I. Anyway, I listened to it, and I didn't like it. But I put it on again, and I put it on again, and I was playing a little piano at the time. Man, that record grew on me. And this was not a difficult record to understand. It was only a pianist. But it's quirky. You know, Mm -hmm. there, there are... Um, notes that he hits do you think is that the right note and uh, just the whole attitude of of it it's it's not like flowing and trying to be flowery and popping along exactly it's kind of churchy in some way or stodgy maybe or halting but you know I, I, I really thought this guy knows what he's doing he's famous he knows more than I do what can I learn from him and that was part of the motivation of my teaching listen. And I love that record. I mean, today I just think that that's, And also that record, right, knowing that, made me eventually, like even 30 years later, learn to listen to Jelly Roll Morton's solo piano from 1923. And it also helped me understand Cecil Taylor's solo albums from the 1980s.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, it gave me insight into piano music It's valuable. These are valuable
0: tools, learning how to listen. A lot of times I feel like jazz is only referred to as in the past when there's still jazz that's even reaching significant cultural success. I mean, the last, what was it, last year there was Floating Points and Pharaoh Sanders with The Promises album. That was a really big album. Uh, Kamazi Washington's The Epic was another one that really saw a lot of success. What would you say to people who are more inclined to modern sounds rather than going backwards? What albums and artists would you recommend them checking out or pursuing?
1: So I think John Batiste. I don't think there's a more popular jazz artist than him right now. And I think that he's, he's a very fine improviser. He's an excellent pianist. He's a fun performer. I mean, he reminds me of the spirit of Louis Armstrong, you know, really bringing that to us. I appreciate that. Other people today, uh, I like the vocalist Jasmine Horn. I like the vocalist Cecile McLaurin Salvent. Very like the Epsilon and Omega, two different ends of the jazz vocal spectrum. But I think they're both exciting and fun to listen to. I don't know. And I like John Schofield. I guess he's not anywhere new. You're new anymore. He always really sounds fresh to me. Yeah. Guitar player. Yeah. Um,
0: and I love his work with Modesky Martin Wood. Those are some fine albums too. Yeah. That's another great group.
1: Yes, I mean, there's so much. Whatever the market for jazz is, in terms of buying records or listening to radio, there sure are a lot of people, young people, who want to play music like this. Hmm. Now, whether they call it jazz or not, uh, that's kind of up in the air. But they want to play music where they can just start playing their instrument with other people and the other people respond to them mm-hmm. and they have a sense that they're going somewhere.
0: Well, Howard, as we wrap up our conversation, you've taught me a lot. What can we teach other people? What do you have to plug? What can, what can we point to, put people towards to learn more about you or some of your work or what's really interesting to you?
1: Uh, okay, well, I've written two books, um, Miles Ornett, Cecil Jazz Beyond Jazz, which is sort of a study of the avant-garde. And what keeps being uh, fresh and generative and that we argue about and that many people will say, that's not music, that's not jazz. That's one of my books. Another one is Future Jazz, which I wrote in 1999. And it was about musicians who were coming up from roughly 1975 to uh, the turn of the century. And includes uh, um, Witten Marsalis sort of framing the whole discussion of these other musicians what their backgrounds are, what their ambitions are. But now that book came out 22 years ago. I'm hoping to do a revised version of that that brings those musicians up to date. So that's a project I've been working on for a while. I've got kind of lined up and um, uh, keep your eyes open for uh, Future Jazz Redo or Future Jazz 20 Years Later, I don't know what we'll call it. In the meantime, I'm the president of the Jazz Journalist Association, as you mentioned, and we have just announced the winners of our 27th annual Jazz Awards. If you go to www.jjajazawards.org, you will see uh, the awards that we gave in 47 um, categories of excellence, excellence in music, also excellence in music media. So you can find other podcasts to look into, books to look into, uh, writers or photographers whose works you might enjoy. And also you can see, I think there's 30 musicians who we've given top honors to. And you can still also see the nominations. So uh, there's well over 200 musicians nominated. And you can get a sense of what's out there, what the critics like, and maybe you'll see some... uh, recommendations there that uh, interest you and that you want to follow up on. The Jazz Journalist Association also has a podcast called The Buzz, The Buzz, the JJA podcast, and that drops a new episode every two weeks. We just started that. There's four episodes out, and uh, you can find that wherever you go for your podcasts. I think in July, we will be doing an online event that features many of the winners of the Jazz Awards and also a group of people we call Jazz Heroes. These are from all over the country. There are uh, 28 of them from 27 U.S. cities, I think. And these are people who work behind the scenes to support jazz. And the, the Jazz Heroes Association wants to highlight and help to celebrate in their local communities. And so in July, I am trying to produce a large media event that will be interactive. that will include the heroes and include the winners of the Jazz Awards and some jazz journalists. And hopefully the attendees will be able to chat with these people in real time and have other interactions. So that's still in the concept stages, but uh, it's one of my big projects for the next couple of months.
0: Well, Howard, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an absolute pleasure for me. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate your time today.
1: I enjoyed talking to you.
0: I'm Lance Ingram, and this is Yesterday's Concert. Thanks for tuning in to another show. Sources and more information on today's show are available on our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. While you're there, check out some old episodes, or connect with us on Twitter, at ConcertPod, or on Instagram, at Yesterday's Concert. And until next time, take care of your shoes.